California Frontier Podcast, Episode 9. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassage, and I'm your host. So in this episode, I'm going to finish my interview with Ezekiel Steer, and we're going to talk a little bit in more broad terms about the cultures of indigenous people in colonial Latin America, about his travels there, and about how culture was preserved in both the cities and the countrysides during that time period. So I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. And without further ado, let's listen to the rest of my interview with Ezekiel Steer. What would you say are general ideas or uh, concepts that you've come across in your research that, that you think would, would surprise most people when you think about uh, colonial, Mexico colonial, Latin America? Well... I think I, I have some uh, some big ideas that I that I'm that I use in my teaching. One one of them is to focus on cities. Uh, urban centers were very important for the Spanish, and they're key as well to indigenous cultural survival in a couple of ways. First, because that's where uh, native peoples learn how to write, and through uh, appropriations or negotiations with the uh, Latin alphabet, with the Western alphabet, they're able to preserve their knowledge and uh, disseminate it. And uh, that's, that's an amazing development for indigenous cultures because like in Mexico, for example, uh, prior to that, you had to be a specialist called a tlacuilo in order to produce a pictorial text or in order to read it. But now anyone who's able to learn the sounds of the alphabet can potentially write and decipher writing. Uh, so there's an explosion of writing uh, in all kinds of ways. Most of it uh, ends up being kind of common legal documents like last testaments or uh, land um, cadastrals, like descriptions of where. Uh, where, where someone's property boundaries are. Uh, there are also a lot of letters that people start writing. Uh, and then there's an emergence of this uh, lettered group of people that, that we call notaries. Uh, but these notaries are, are carrying on the tradition of preserving indigenous knowledge because all of their, all of their common documents still hold their worldview. And the, I think the best proof of that uh, is in the research of uh, the late James Lockhart, who's, of course, our, our number one Nawa scholar. We lost him just recently, a few years ago. Uh, but he spent years and years in the archives in Mexico, and he found that just by, by synthesizing all, these, all, this, all this information from these common documents, he was able to find out things about their culture, which people hadn't known 
or, or looked at explicitly for hundreds of years. And uh, similar, similarly in, in Peru, we had the, uh, the quipus, which were uh, knotted strands. There was like the one cord that could be anywhere from like six inches to say a yard long. And then from the central string, they would hang other strings with different knots in them and colors. And if uh, a person was a kipu kumayak, the, the keeper of the kipu, they were able to make the knots or decipher them. But common people didn't have access to that. Uh, it, was, it was for the Incas, it was for the royalty, and it was for the kipu kumayak. But after... Uh, the coming of, of, of writing to these urban centers, then we have a lot of preservation of, of knowledge. And I know your, your research obviously touches on um, Elinka Garcilaso and Felipe Gómez Poma de Ayala and, and, and all these folks who were in, interpreting quipus and writing down information. So uh, that's one way in which the cities ironically promote indigenous uh, knowledge. Uh, and another way in which they promote indigenous knowledge is that the city becomes a sort of dangerous place because that's where the Inquisition is. And that's where a person might, quote unquote, get caught for saying something that, that the Spaniards maybe didn't want them to say. So that meant that they went out into the countryside. And in the countryside, they often continued to practice, they often preserved their cultural practices. And what's amazing about this, there's, there's a book by William O'Connell called, uh, oh, it's called, do, 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 do. Central Mexico after the Spanish conquest, something, something along those lines. But anyway, this was William O'Connell. Um, he explains how Spaniards were only able militarily to collect tribute from urban centers. So in Mexico, that means that physically they were only able, of, able to ask money in a, in a handful of places like Guadalajara, Mexico City, Acapulco, Veracruz. During the 16th century, that's the only place where soldiers can effectively live. They, they do go out on campaigns like to Guatemala or to northern Mexico, but they aren't collecting much tribute. Uh, and so the, the effect of that is that if a person wants to escape tribute collection, you just move into the countryside. And there's a lot of evidence that people did do that. They voted with their feet because uh, during the 16th century and the 17th century, there, there were several floods. Mexico City gets completely flooded and people leave and they go live in the countryside. And, and, and due to that mass exodus, the tribute collection takes a nosedive. They're just not able to collect the money because the people aren't there. So that's something that I've, I've really been getting my mind around. And of course, uh, in Peru, we have an even bigger dichotomy because the, the Spaniards founded Lima as their own settlement. And uh, Cusco, of course, was, was the real imperial center for the, the Andeans, but the Spaniards wanted a port. And so Spaniards can collect tribute in Lima, and they can collect tribute on a limited basis in Cusco. But uh, there are only a few places that end up being lucrative for the Spaniards. So that means that Spaniards tend to congregate 
in certain places and indigenous people tend to congregate in others. <laughs> Which uh, after learning that, I thought, oh, well, this makes a lot of sense. This is why we do have that cultural survival in spite of the very traumatic and violent events of the 16th century. But wasn't that, and I don't want to get on a tangent here, but my curiosity, wasn't that also sort of enshrined that idea of the Republic of the Spaniards and the Republic of the Indians, that Spaniards were meant to congregate in one place and indigenous people in another place. Wasn't that idea sort of enshrined in the laws of the Indies at a certain point, even though it wasn't, even though it wasn't always, certainly always um, followed, but that concept was there in legal thought, at least. Yes, it was. And that's my understanding of it, too. It was uh, always a, like a term in conversation, uh, República de Españoles, República de Indios. And maybe by the 1570s, that was more of a, of a common understanding. Uh, uh, it was around that time when, uh, in Mexico, they said something like, uh, the Inquisition can no longer try uh, indigenous nobles because they, they have such a, a recent in, um, knowledge about Christianity that, that, that they no longer fall under the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. Uh, only Spaniards can. And by... Uh, by the 1700s, if you look at the Inquisition cases, uh, they're only about Spaniards. Uh, and if anything ends up in the in, in, in Inquisitorial archive from uh, indigenous people, it's usually dismissed as, as superstition or folklore, not really worthy of our attention. Uh, so that, that was something that really surprised me as well. Just to bring it back to California, right? The, I think it's what you're pointing out is that the is that the Spanish presence and then the the Spanish Empire in the Americas really goes through a pretty rapid evolution. That what happens, you know, in 1519, 20, 21, etc., with the arrival of Cortes, the fall of Tenochtitlan, the the beginning of the conquest, so to speak, is quite different than already with what's happening a decade later, two decades, three decades, a hundred years ago, a hundred years later. And by the time you have a, um, a Spanish presence, by the time the Spanish empire reaches Alta California, there's been, it, it's a different thing, even though hmm. certain basic assumptions are there with regard to how um you know uh, how indigenous people are dealt with etc but but the evolution that occurs over 300 years 250 years is real and that it's um it's not a static or monolithic situation or process mm -hmm. but in fact yeah i was I'm very interested. Uh, I, you know, the reason I, I, I know you is because I came across your, your project, you know, and, and I think it'd be interesting to know more about it. Hmm. Um, well, I, I, yeah, I, I can segue into that. Uh, talking about another one of my 
I guess, lar larger concepts that I use in teaching. It's something that I, that I call the technologies of oppression. Uh, when we normally think about oppressive governments, uh, we in the West are, are dealing with a lot of trauma from mostly the 20th century, a little bit in the 19th century and earlier. And it goes back through the world wars and the dictatorships in Latin America and, of course, in the Soviet Union. It goes back to the Napoleonic era and the, all the wars. Uh, that we have this idea that a modern state has the ability to repress people. Uh, but the Spaniards did, did not have access to the kind of technology that even Napoleon had. Napoleon, for example, developed this, this uh, system of, of signs called semaphore, where towers could signal each other. And he could send a message across France in 20 minutes. And he could say something like, issue a warrant for so-and-so's arrest, and then find that person out there hundreds of miles away and bring him back to the capital instantly practically in a day and then of course when the telegraph comes along in the in the 1800s we have that same instantaneous capability that we've been basically building on ever since well in the 16th century they didn't have access to that rapidity of information and the same level of of destructive capability so uh the Spaniards did have guns, but the harquebuses they had were slow loading. They were really inaccurate. Uh, a lot of times they would mostly hurt people, maybe mortally, mortally, so they would maybe bleed to death, but they were not very accurate or powerful or effective. And they took maybe five minutes to load. So you only get one shot, essentially, before there's hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, we know that lots of times indigenous people were successful in driving them off militarily. It took the Spanish 200 years to conquer the Yucatan Peninsula, for example. They, they failed multiple times and it was disastrous for the Spaniards and they lost a lot of life by trying to go into Mayan territory. And they figured it's wiser to stay out. A similar area was the Darien, which is Panama. It was inhospitable and Spaniards got killed all the time there. And then probably the best case is uh, southern Chile, which is, which is the Mapuche heartland. And they were particularly skilled at, at killing Spaniards with stones when they tried to ride up into their canyons on their horses. <laughs> and so I call this the, the technologies of oppression that, that simply didn't exist in the same way. And I think that one of the, the problems that we have living where we live now is that when we think of the whole idea of domination or a, a, a colonial government, we're thinking about a scenario that's similar to the British in India, right? Where the, the idea is complete control. We know where everyone lives. Everyone has an address and some kind of identification number. It's just not like that in the 16th century. And uh, it's a very fortunate thing. It's a very good thing because uh, because of that, we have all the cultural richness of Latin America because uh, the Spaniards weren't, there were so many things they weren't able to control. Well, it's funny. If you read stories of our testimonies from the 19th century in California, you know, mm -hmm. Spanish soldiers were, well, first of all, most Spanish soldiers at the time in, in California were mestizo, were of mixed ethnicity, right? Um, 
Secondly, they are mainly um, fighting, if they're fighting with indigenous people, they're mainly using spears or knives or uh, the, the short or the sword that they carry with them. They do carry muskets, but once again, they're not, even then, a musket uh, takes a while to load, to charge. Uh, and so it's still uh, on the California frontier, almost the same situation. And of course, they are usually traveling with Indian militias from the missions who are armed uh, and very skilled with bows and arrows, you know? So not much from that standpoint, I'm sort of giving myself the lie, but but from that standpoint, not much changes in Spanish um, frontier life over a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, to, to that, we can also add the, the slow communications with uh, with Sevilla and Madrid. It would take several months to get a letter sent and returned. So uh, compared to what we usually think about nowadays in terms of empire, it, it, was, it was much loosely, much more loosely organized uh, than now. So, so tell me uh, a little bit more about your uh, project, uh, Forgotten Lives Latin America. I think, it's, I think well, it's so cool what you're doing. Oh, man, I, I, I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, I, it, was, it was about in de December of 2017, January 2018, uh, I, I was adjuncting uh, in Southern California. And similarly to, to what you said, it's like all these things are so fascinating and so interesting and in many ways so empowering because uh, whatever a person's ethnic background is in, in the Americas, this affects you if you live here. Uh, and so this is, this is fascinating to everyone and, and very important to everyone because it's where we live. So I thought, how can I make this a little more relevant? And so I started to think about the lives, like you said, and uh, I, I ended up on this, this idea of forgotten lives. How can, how can we bring them back? And I thought, well, forgotten lives of Latin America, forgotten lives LA, there we are in LA County. And that, that, just that name attempts to bridge Latin America with Los Angeles. And uh, I made the tagline, uh, Trips, Talks, and Books on uh, Colonial Latin America. So I thought that maybe by uh, having things like a book club uh, and blogs and then helping to raise money to go on uh, trips to, to Latin America, uh, it would be a way to really get the word out and give people experiences that, that could be transformative. And um, it was during, uh, yeah, during 2018 and 2019, I worked very hard on that. 2019, just uh, earlier this year, I took a group to Peru and I took a group to Mexico City. And uh, both of the trips were simply amazing because uh, you, you get there, you, you get to Peru and you start to see these, these places. Uh, you, you, we rode into town into Cusco and the, the cab driver is telling us about Pachacutic, who was the ninth Inca, who brought more organization to the empire than anyone else ever did. And he built all these roads and he connected everyone and their kipus through these messengers called chasquis. 
And he set up all these schools for the education of uh, native noble women and, and, and staffed them with these uh, teachers called Nustas. And uh, he was explaining to us, this cab driver, this cab driver was explaining to us how the Incas, unlike the Spanish, used education and civilization in order to control their empire. Well, that, of course, I had heard those things before. But when you bring it all together by actually being there, everybody's light bulbs are going off. And, and, and we're like, this is amazing. And we're walking around and we saw the Plaza de Armas in uh, Cusco, which is where uh, they killed the very last Inca the Spaniards did, whose name was Tupac Amaru, the first. And that was in the 16th century. But then uh, later on in uh, 1781, there was an indigenous rebellion where Tupac Amaru II takes his predecessor's name and starts a rebellion against the Spaniards, and they killed him there too. And you can see this, this monument to his death. They, they drew and quartered him with horses in Cusco. And standing in the middle of, of Cusco is a statue of the Inca um, Pachacutic, the Earth Transformer. And so we see these things, and, and it's, it's amazing because people see firsthand uh, how all this richness of the indigenous culture is right there. And people talk about these things as if they happened a month ago. It's that fresh to them. And I was like, okay, first of all, I feel a little more vindicated because I think about these things all the time and I don't feel so crazy anymore. <laughs> but um, in any case, had similar experiences when we went to uh, Machu Picchu and to other archaeological sites like Ollantaytambo. Uh, there are many Quechua speakers still uh, preserving their culture in the Sierra and in the high country there in Peru. Uh, and Quechua was the language of the Incas. Yes. And the interesting thing about Quechua and, and Nahuatl is that they're both imperial languages, but they're from before the Spaniards came. And uh, the Inca's empire stretched from modern-day Colombia all the way to northern Chile. So they had a very large empire. And so Quechua became this lingua franca, like this administrative language. And uh, similarly, Nahuatl in central Mexico was like this administrative language that everyone used just for business. After the conquest, after the Spaniards come, after the Spanish invasion, uh, Nahuatl continues as a lengua franca, and it was it was so powerful. Here's an, here's another thing, another fissure in the Spanish armor or whatever, another crack in their armor. The Spaniards considered it easier to have interpreters than to try to make the indigenous people learn Spanish. That didn't happen. That whole idea of like you must learn Spanish because because uh, it's it's what you speak. That didn't come along until the 19th century after Mexican independence, that's when they said, mm, now you need to speak Spanish. Uh, prior to that, Nahuatl was the lingua franca. And uh, the, the ruler that Napoleon appointed, Maximiliano de Habsburgo, he actually proposed that, that Nahuatl be the official language of the government as well in Mexico, because everyone was speaking it. How interesting, how interesting. Yeah. <laughs> 
So another like head turning thing, right? And then, uh, you know, in, in, in Peru uh, and Bolivia and, and Ecuador, we know uh, that Quechua is, is very strong today and it was strong throughout the colonial period. So are you, um, are you doing more tours this, this summer or are you, um, what's your, what are you doing now? What, what's your next, uh, what are your next well, steps? When, when I was, uh, when I was adjuncting, um, Forgotten Lives worked really well and I was, I was so excited with it and I would stay up at night and I couldn't fall asleep. And I said, the only thing that could possibly get in the way of this would be a tenure track job. And then that's exactly what happened. I got hired at, at um, Auburn. So what uh, I am doing now with Forgotten Lives is I'm, I'm making it into primarily a resource page. Uh, and I'm working to use my experience with Forgotten Lives okay. to, uh, to help the study abroad program here at, at Auburn. And uh, we're trying to put together a summer program in Cusco. And so for now, those, those are the, the, I guess, the, the next steps for Forgotten Lives. But I, I am making it a resource page, and I want it to be a place where people can go to learn more about codices uh, and the indigenous texts and to learn more about history. Uh, I have done uh, a blog post this fall, and uh, I want to continue with that blogging and uh, assembling resources and even recordings when I can and uh, to just try to make it a place where people can go and learn the history and the, uh, the experiences that we often miss. So Ezekiel, if, um, if somebody wants to go to that resource, uh, where would they find it? It's at Forgotten Lives, one word, no separation, Forgotten Lives, then L-A, ForgottenLivesLA.com. All right, so I'll put a, um, on the, the page of this um, interview, I'll put a link to it so people can go directly there. And, um, awesome, I, thank you. Yeah, for me, it's, it's great. I mean, of course, I'm... I'm also a little selfish because I do teach courses on uh, Latin American culture and history. And uh, so I'm going to definitely use that as a resource for my own students and for my own general knowledge. So um, wonderful. So good. But Hey, I really want to thank you for this. Um, Once again, we could, I could probably go on asking you questions for another couple of hours. (laughs) but I know you've got a job to do. It's, it's uh, work week. So um, I'll, I'll let you go. And once again, um, if you want to know more about Forgotten Lives Latin America or Forgotten Lives Los Angeles, whichever you're most interested in, uh, you can definitely go to the website and there's just amazing information there. Most of all, to challenge our own um, uh, biases, prejudices, misunderstandings about this vast um, culture and history that we've just only scratched the surface about. So Ezekiel, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That ends my interview with Ezekiel Steer. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
I really uh, learned a lot from him. And one of the things that impressed me so much is how much more there still is to know about colonial Latin America. Uh, sometimes when we study this time period, we learn a lot about the immediate conquest. You know, Cortez and his soldiers arriving in Mexico, or Pizarro and his men in Peru. And then we don't really hear anything else about the next 250, almost 300 years of that time period. So I am really uh, motivated to go learn more and to understand better this really complex and fascinating period and how much information has remained about the indigenous cultures of those areas. And Latin America or Spanish America, whatever you want to call it, is such a mosaic of cultures from the uh, Pueblo people in New Mexico all the way down to, uh, like he mentioned, the Mapuche in Chile, the Incas and other peoples in Peru. There's just so much to learn. And you can do so, uh, or a good way to start is by going to Ezekiel's website, uh, Forgotten Lives Latin America. And I have the links to that on our own page at the California Frontier Project. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you like what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But most importantly, spread the word. Let other people know. Also, be sure to check out our website at www.californiafrontier.net and send any questions, comments, or suggestions you have to me at damian at californiafrontier.net.